So how are you all doing on this rainy day? Yeah. Amen. So let the church say amen. amen. I don't know why that song stirs me so, but it certainly does. About a week ago or so, um, there was a fine young man, one of our Royal Rangers, who um, made an appointment to see me. He is, um, Rangers is our scouting program through the church here. Many of you know about it. Many of, many of you, your children, your son has been through it. He's seven years old. He has, he's one of these really overachieving kind, or his, his little vest is so full of badges, I think he's, they're going to have to get another vest to keep all the, put all the badges on. Well, his, his next badge to earn was to go interview the senior pastor. And so an appointment was made, and um, on 8 o'clock, a week ago Wednesday, and he showed up with one of the fine ranger leaders to my office, <clears throat> and he had his list of questions to ask me, and his questions like, how long have you been the pastor? He was so grown, he's seven years old, so grown up in the way he did this. How long have you been the pastor? And like a little interviewer, he had his paper and his piece of paper, and I was giving him the answer, and the, and the ranger leader with him was going to try to help him spell uh, the answers, and he said, I got it, I got it. <laughs> and so, um, and he asked me, he says, what did you do before that? And I said, well, I was the minister of music here at Bethesda. He said, well, what did you do before that? And I said, well, time didn't exist before that. <laughs> so, trying to explain that. And then uh, I got a big kick out, and I knew she would get a kick out of it also. The next question, he says, have you had any other secretary other than Miss Priscilla, was the way he said it. <laughs> Priscilla. It was so cute to hear him say that. So I explained about Shelly, had worked with me for over 30 years, and, and uh, it, was, it was really precious. And then he asked me this. He said, what is the favorite part of your job? And that's not the first time I've been asked that question, but it's, it's always the easiest one for, for me to answer because, without a doubt, the most satisfying and gratifying and enriching part of my responsibilities is this thing that we call pastoral care. Because to someone who has a true pastoral calling, there are few things, if anything, that is more important to you than to be able to minister to people, uh, particularly people who are in pain or in crisis or in some sort of a difficult situation. It, it might be a, a sudden event like what took place a week ago Wednesday night when Gary and Faith Cooper, I haven't, I, I'm assuming they're probably not back yet, Gary and Faith were in a, an auto accident on the way to church on a Wednesday night. And um, we were able to pray with them. It may be something sudden or, you know, most weeks as pastors, we deal with families in crisis. We deal with individuals in some sort of conflict. I spoke with a man uh, in the last few days who's facing a very serious job crisis. And there's never a shortage of couples who are in marriage crisis at any given time. And there's always people dealing with physical issues and, and other issues. And it's what we do as pastors and honestly, we counted a privilege to do that. It's, it's our calling. It's, it's what we do. And I honestly think one of the reasons that I went through what I experienced this past week was simply to keep me and to keep my heart in touch with the reality of pain and what it can do to you physically, mentally, and emotionally. And the situation was this. I have a, a, a herniated disc that is pinching the fire out of my sciatic nerve on my left side. And so this time a week ago, I was, uh, uh, I was uh, one intense young puppy for sure. Let me say it that way. And um, it hit hardest in the middle of the night on Saturday night about 4 in the morning. And uh, 
uh, Becky took me to the ER, and by 6 o'clock, I, I called Des, and I said, I said, Des, you, you, you got to help me. I, there's no way I can even get off the couch or get out of this place today, and so I'm going to, can you preach for me today? And I heard he did okay. <laughs> I heard he did okay. Yeah. Of course he did okay. He's Des Evans. I could have given, I mean, that was, he had a whole four hours notice before the service. He, I could have called him on his way here and he would have been fabulous, you know. I called him last night, he called me last night just to check on me and, and he said, how are you doing? I said, fine. I said, I, I heard you were incredible on Sunday. And I said, Des, you could get up and preach the phone book and everybody would fall out, you know. And so, um, anyway, I was so thankful, thankful for him. But this whole thing of crisis and pain and life issues, it's just a common theme anytime you have people involved. And at any given time, I'm so aware of it as a pastor, all of us who serve in a pastoral capacity here, we're so aware of that you're going through stuff. And, and I want to just say this today. If you're currently not going through something, let me just give you a word of encouragement. Cheer up. Your day's coming pretty soon, okay? <laughs> it's going to happen. Our son, Pastor Shaler, the youth pastor here, has become a fan of the writer Tim Keller. I know some of the rest of you are becoming familiar with his writings. And uh, Shaler has me reading Mr. Keller's book, The Reason for God. And in that book, Keller speaks in terms of apologetics about one of the primary arguments that non-believers present, which is this. How could a God of love allow so much pain and suffering in the world? And I'm sure because of the recent events that we just prayed for uh, a few minutes ago about the earthquakes that have taken place, I'm sure that question is going to arise again by non-believers. You have such a loving God. How could a God of love allow such a thing to happen? Well, and you probably encounter that in your own witnessing to other people. That's a, a primary argument that non-believers want to, want to present. Well, this Mr. Keller... He has great thoughts on the subject, but he's, I, I took note of a couple things that he said that uh, directly answer this. He said, you know, many people have to admit that most of what they really needed for success in life came to them through their most difficult and painful experiences. Is that not true? Those of you who have some life journey behind you, can't you also say that's true for you? That, that what you really needed most for success in life came to you through your most difficult and painful circumstances. That's, that's how we learn. Pain is a great teacher to us. You learn not to touch the hot stove again. Don't go back there. It helps guide you. And when you start to reach the boundaries of the borders of life that go into the unsafe zone, when there's pain involved, it helps guide and direct you. Something else that, that he said that caught my attention and this is a mouthful, but hang on to this as we go. He says, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same time a God great and transcendent enough to have good reason for allowing it to continue that you can't know of today. Let me give that to you again. I know that's a mouthful. If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same time a God who is great and transcendent enough to have good reason for allowing it to continue that you can't know today. Well, the good news is this, church. 
The Bible gives us lots of help and understanding about how to face a trial, how to face those difficult and challenging times, how to face pain and suffering, and how to discover the amazing grace of God right in the midst of that trial. And we're going to look at a very familiar passage to you. It'll be familiar to you today. You probably learned it in Sunday school. If you came to church, if it's new for you, don't worry, we're going to go through the story and you're going to get caught up quickly. But I want you to imagine with me for just a moment. Imagine with me three old Hebrew guys sitting around having coffee in Jerusalem. And they had made a commitment to each other that until they died... They would get together at least once a year to remember, like war veterans, and, and, and they're remembering a day that happened in the past. They're dressed up in the garb of their past. And when they got together, they would do as old men do. They would reminisce about the old days, and specifically about one particular day and what took place on that day. And it might seem a bit odd, but when they would get together, they would, they would literally take a sniff of their clothes, and then they would say, no, no, no smell there, no smell. And these three old guys dressed up in old Babylonian garb were named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And every year that they met to remember, they would dress up in, in my imagination, in the furnace clothes that they, were, that they had on the day that they were thrown into the fire. And they would say to each other, look at this. These clothes never even got burned. They never even smelled like smoke. And one of the biggest miracles, guess what, is this. I can still wear mine. It's a little snug in the waist, but I can still put it on. And in my imagination, I can see them still talking about that old story that took place on that one special day. And I think there's a particular word that comes up when they get together to talk, and that word is this, walk. Walk. We're going to read the story in just a minute, but for now, let me just give you the precursor. Understand that King Nebuchadnezzar takes these three young, they were young at that time, Hebrew men, and he throws them into the furnace for a reason you'll see in a moment. But then what the king sees, the thing he sees is astounding to me yet to this day. He says, I see them walking in the furnace. It doesn't say they're screaming in the furnace. It doesn't say that they are in pain. It, it says, I see them walking walking in the furnace. Wouldn't you love to be sitting in on this imaginary conversation to hear them reminisce about that experience, to hear them talk about simply walking in the furnace, in the furnace that was so hot, it says in the Scripture, and we'll, we'll read this, that it literally killed the soldiers who were responsible for throwing them into the, the furnace because it had been turned up seven times hotter than it normally was, and it was so hot, it killed the men who were throwing them into the furnace. And then to hear them as they sit around and talk about this and reminisce, talk about what the king saw when he saw that fourth man in the furnace with them who we know to be Jesus, the Son of God. Which is once again proof that Jesus existed before he was born. This is an Old Testament story. You've heard us say that. He existed. The, he, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. He has always been there. And this is Old Testament proof that he was, existed even at that time. And so in my mind, they meet year after year just to talk about what it was like to walk through the fire. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, let me read it first from the message. It says, friends, 
when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. I said with glory just around the corner. You know, when I read that and was refreshed in my own heart with that this week, I I just had this sense. You know what? I bet Sunday morning at at, at the hour of worship at Bethesda, there's going to be people sitting here today that you need a word of encouragement, that you have been walking through the fire, but you know what? You are just about to hit the corner, and there's glory just around the corner. The New Living Version reads like this in 1 Peter 4. It says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it is revealed to all the world. Let me just, give me just a second to talk about that glory. It's for those who get through the fiery ordeal. It's those who get through to the other side of the furnace. It's those who take that walk through the fire, like Isaiah says when he tells us in Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And though the rivers come, they will not overflow you. And then he says this, and when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. That ought to get a hallelujah out of somebody today. And I love the emphasis on the word walk. Doesn't say you're going to run through the fire. Doesn't say you're going to go, ouch, 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 ouch. Doesn't say that. Says, no, you're simply going to walk through the fire because it will not scorch you and it will not burn you. This is exactly what we see happening in our text today in Daniel chapter 3. This is during the Babylonian captivity. And we're going to read now, not in my imagination of the story as I conveyed it earlier, but we're going to read about a real fire and a real situation and a real God who, like Isaiah said, was truly with these three young men. And this passage that we're going to read is going to remind us how often we try to avoid certain situations that we encounter in life that are literally designed by God to bring answers to us or designed to get us to where He wants us to be, the next assignment that we have, the next thing that He has for us. God is wanting to remind us, remind all of us of what what He is able to do through these situations, not only in you but also in those around you. I want to just say this. I've observed in all of my years of being a Christian that there appear to be four stages in our efforts to be a witness for Christ to those who are around us. And if you are taking notes, I want you to, I want you to get these four stages because I think they're critical. It's from observations that I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen it as well. Number one, our witness most often starts out as a verbal witness, we use our words. It's the sharing of the gospel, and, 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 and it's just the proclaiming of the truth and telling what Christ has done. We're using our words. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12, how will they hear without a preacher, without someone telling them? And so there's this witness that takes place using words, heralding the truth. But you and I both know that there are sometimes with family and friends that it seems like our words just do not penetrate You've told them, you've told them, you've talked to them, you've shared Christ, you've, and it just doesn't seem to go anywhere. It seems to bounce back on you and doesn't penetrate. So I want to propose to you 
And if that's the first stage of sharing and being a witness, there's a second stage and it, that kicks in, and it's, and it's this. It's not so much your words, it's your lifestyle. It's, you know, this is when that old adage uh, comes into focus when it says, what we can believe is your behavior, regardless of what your words are. So many people say, well, I am this, or I believe this, and I, 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 am, you know, I, do, that, I do that. But what we really believe is your behavior, what we really see. And so there, another way of saying that is your actions speak louder than your words. And there are often seasons for us where we need to be quiet and simply let our life show that we are a Christian by what we do. If that's the situation for you, if you've been in a situation where you've been using words over and over and you've been talking to somebody and it doesn't seem to be penetrating, why don't you just back off and let your life show them what a Christian really looks like? That's, that's stage two. Some people know how to say it, but they don't know how to live it. And that's a problem because lifestyle should never be divorced from what comes out of our mouth. It's so much harder to witness without words than it is with words. So then I think if that's two stages, I think there's a third stage, and that is this. The first is giving our words. The second is, is our lifestyle. The third stage is when you witness, when your friends and your family observe you going through a trial. That's the third stage. They're essentially and probably quietly saying, let's see if this Christianity thing really works. Let's see if it's really true. They watch you when you lose a son or a daughter, or, or they watch you as you go through tragedy, or they, they watch you as you go through financial collapse. And they're wondering, ah, now as a Christian, I'm wondering how they're going to handle this. They're talking about you. Let's see if they're really a Christian when, when the suffering takes place, when the, when the trial really comes. And I've mentioned this before, that line that C.S. Lewis gives us when he was asked the question, why do Christians suffer? And C.S. Lewis, without skipping a beat, he responded, it's because they're the only ones who really know how to take it. So very often, the stages of evangelism with friends and family go, first words, second, they're watching your lifestyle or your behavior, how you are Monday through Saturday. Third, they observe you walking through your own trial and how you conduct yourself through that Stage four of your witness is this. It's when then they go through their trial and they come back to you. And then it goes back to words. When they're facing their own calamity and the cycle goes, goes full circle and then they come back and they're asking you, how did you do it? How, how, tell me how to pray. Tell, tell me how to get through this. Tell me what it is that I, I need to do. And let me just say that's why I believe so strongly in the principle of a, a multi-generational church. One of the things I've found in people, younger couples who come to our fellowship, they say, Pastor, we're so thankful to have people who are a little older than we are who've already hit this life's stage that we're just now hitting in some of the challenges that we're hitting. And they know how to pray for us. They know how to tell us how to walk through this as believers, how to hold on in faith in the process of what we're dealing with. Well, this is exactly what happens in Daniel chapter 3. If you have your Bibles open there, and uh, let's, let's read this story that you know so well. King, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, all the big shots, that, that you can come and to the dedication of the statue that he had set up. 
And so all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, they bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews, and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king! You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, the flute, and all of the other instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But guess what? There are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon, and they are paying no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Crazy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. Don't you think they're basically saying, are you serious? Really? And he goes like this, verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. I love picking three words out of that verse. God is able. Say it with me. God I want us to say it three times. The first time emphasize the first word, then the second, then the third. Let's do it. God is able. God is able. God is able. Maybe it's because it's a song that I learned back in, I don't remember if it was the 80s or 90s. We had a song that we sang in church, God is able. It just reminds me of the magnitude and the greatness of our God. Dear church, today, whatever it is you're going through, God is able to get you through whatever it is. Blessed be his name. Our God is able. So if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Well, let's just say that didn't go over too well. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. I can't, I'm trying to do that, but I'm afraid they'll get a close-up on the camera or something. His face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. And then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they 
tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, their turbans, their robes, and their garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out here. I thought there was no power that could deliver them out of his hands. I thought he questioned what power could rescue them. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. That's the delivering hand of our God, church. So I have to ask you, do you question whether or not our God is able? Just ask David about Goliath. Ask Noah about that ark and the flood. Ask Samson about those blinded eyes and the temple filled with Philistines. Ask Moses about the 40 years in the wilderness. Ask Joshua about the Canaan land. Ask Abraham about having to offer up his son. Ask Joseph about the pit, the prison, and the palace. Ask Mary about if a virgin can conceive. Ask Paul about a Pharisee preaching the gospel. Ask a dying thief about a saving Lord. Do we get the picture? Our God is Abraham. Only God can do those kinds of things. And so here we have a government official who is calling all the people to come and worship this statue. Let's understand that just because a government calls for something doesn't necessarily mean it's right. For the believer... For the one who is determined to follow Christ, you always have to go back to what does the Bible say? I know there are plenty of voices around today who are denying the authority of Scripture. They do not believe that it is the infallible Word of God. You ladies and gentlemen who are in my life stage, I need to, if you've not noticed it already, I need to tell you something. There's a generation coming up behind us many of whom are not sure that you can trust the Bible. I encounter it more and more and more every day. It used to be when you stood behind the sacred desk like this that you and you were declaring the truth of the Word of God that you stood on the sure footing that you were essentially talking to people who believed the Bible. They believed it was the authority for their life. They believed it was the infallible Word of God. That is no longer the case. And I'm aware that there may be some here in this house who are still questioning and seeking and searching for truth. And I want you to know that you are welcome here. You're welcome as you do your searching and seeking, but your condition does not and will not alter our position when it comes to the authority of Scripture. 
It has stood the test of the ages. It was true and vibrant and vital and life-giving long before you and I got here, and it will be long after you and I are gone, should the Lord tarry. My greatest concern about what took place in the Supreme Court last summer was not only the obvious issues that could come out of the decision that was made, and you know what I'm referring to, but far greater in superseding all that was what was said to the generation coming up behind me, that you can just rip this part of Scripture out and decide that that has no validity. If you can take that out, then it says to them, you can rip out anything you want. Dear friends, we are not allowed to violate the authority of the eternal Word of God. It has stood forever, and it will forever stand. Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. And we validate the authority and the authenticity and the infallibility of the Word of God. So the issue for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that there's this governmental call to bow down to this statue. It's what the big boys are calling for. But if what the big boys are calling for, if what Washington is calling for, if what Austin is calling for is unbiblical, then church, we cannot bow down. And here's the point we need to see, that when you read the whole of the history of the story, you realize that there weren't just four guys, there weren't just four Jewish, or three Jewish young men who went to Babylon. Literally, there were thousands, some historians estimate up to 70,000 who were in Babylon when they were there. So the question obviously is this, what were the other Jews doing who knew that this was a violation of commandment Number one, which was, thou shalt have no other gods before me. What was everybody else doing? I could almost hear them facetiously saying, you know, listen, we believe in Jehovah. You know, we believe in God. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's just that, that that furnace is so hot, and surely our loving God wouldn't want us in there. That, that just doesn't sound like a God of love. And so we know in our hearts who we really serve. We know in our hearts. Let me tell you something. How we really know your heart is by your behavior and what you do. That's how we know your heart. You can say whatever you want about what you really believe in your heart. It will come out by your behavior, by what you actually do. Well, we know in our hearts who we serve. So let's just be realistic about this. That sounds a little bit to me too much like some Christians today who are willing to succumb to things that are unbiblical, that don't want to walk a life of holiness and live according to the Word of God. They want to excuse it because the culture of the day says something different. Am I getting a little too radical for you today? And there are just some moments that God has to lock your legs and say, it doesn't matter what everybody else says or does. It doesn't even matter what other Christians are saying, doing. And yes, that's the hard part. To see the Babylonian officials bow down, we expect that. But to see other Jews bow down who knew this was a violation, that's when it becomes fuzzy. We're watching our own people who know what the Word of God says still bowing down. And then all of a sudden you have three young men who are standing firm, not bowing down. They're going to live by the mandate of Scripture. They're going to do what the Word of the, of the Lord says. And when the instruments start sounding, just imagine what's going through their mind. They're going, what are all, what are all these, what are they doing? I thought they read the same word that we read. 
And can't you just hear those other Jews hollering, hollering at those guys, just bow down. You're messing it up for all of us. Come on, just do it. It's so simple. Just bow and we get out of here. Doesn't that sound a little too much like those who are willing to compromise today the truth of the word? It's difficult when your own enemies are the people who are supposed to love God like you. But the three Hebrew lads do not bow. And as promised, they're tied up. Notice our passage mentioned that four times. Tied up or bound up. And then they're thrown into a furnace seven times hotter than normal. So that the other soldiers even died in the process. And the king looks in the furnace and he commands them to come out. It's time for the coming out. Now you can, your, you can use your own imagination any way you want with this. But I noticed a couple Sundays ago, Pastor Michael used a chest bump in a sermon. I didn't know it was legal to use a chest bump in a sermon. But he taught me you could do that. Just imagine, I don't think they just walked out gently out of that fire. Don't you think there was a little bit of celebrating? That they, not even a hair on their head was singed. There might have been a little bit of swagger walking as they walked out of that fire. Might have been a little bit of 70s going on in the process. Whatever it was. I would surely be, I'd surely be saying, you thought... You thought, O oh king, there was nobody that could rescue us. You thought there was no power strong enough to deliver us. But you forgot that we serve a God who walks around in the fire with us and he can deliver us. Smell this. Look at this. Brent, come on, get me out of this. Come on, hurry up. Was it not three men that we cast into the midst of that fire? And they answered, certainly, O king. And he said, but I see four loose, unbound, and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. Let me just say this. You don't have to be a Christian very long to know what a fiery trial is. Am I right about that? So for you and me, I think lesson number one is this. There are times... When God has to send us to the fire to burn some stuff off of us. And it's stuff that doesn't come off in a church service. It doesn't come off in a Bible study. It doesn't come off in a home group. And as passionately as I feel about all those things and you being involved in them. But rather it comes off as you go through a fiery trial. I'm sure you'd prefer me to say this some other way. But here's the truth. Sometimes God has to take you through the fire to burn off some of that stuff. I sat across the table a few days ago from a young man at a lunch table pouring out his heart to me, telling me about the situation he was facing and how difficult it is. And it's a tough situation. Nobody would want to be in those circumstances. And he said, you know what, Pastor? I have learned more about myself. I've come to see more about me and things that are within me that need to not be there. I have, that has been revealed to me more in this process than anything else that has ever happened to me. You may think it's a giant struggle, but God is going, no, no, I'm working inside of you. I'm forming you into the image of my son. And if you will surrender the situation wholly and completely to God, 
you're going to find that you may have walked into that trial all bound up and all tied up, your legs tied up, your arms completely bound up. That if you will surrender yourself to the one who wants to be your deliverer today, you can walk out of that trial with your hands raised to heaven, saying, blessed be the Lord God Almighty, the one who is my deliverer. Lesson number two. The three Hebrew lads got their promotion by getting through their fiery trial. I want you to look quickly at verse 30 of of chapter 3 of Daniel. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Let me just say, not many preachers today will preach to you that you need to go through a fiery trial to be promoted. They may tell you that you should go to a conference, that you need to read certain books, that they may need to tell you that you need to give a certain amount of money, but a fiery trial? No, that's not the way. That, that doesn't preach easily. It's not what people want to hear. But many of us here today have arrived at places that God designed for us because we went through what God had designed for us to go through. So let's understand the kind of testimony these Hebrew boys were giving. It was a a third stage testimony that we talked about a while ago. When someone is observing you going through a trial. And that's how we get verse 28 for this chapter when the king then said, and this is the result of it all. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise, this is the king, the one who was ticked off at them for not bowing and doing what he said. He said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And the message was clear. There is no other God who can deliver but the one true sovereign Jehovah of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Stand to your feet with me, church. Prayer partners are here to pray with you today, and the appeal is going out like this. Every person who feels like you are walking through the fiery trial of a furnace... I'm encouraging you today, just come and let someone anoint you and pray the prayer of faith for you today. Because there is no other position for you to take than to humble yourself before God. Lord, what is it? I'm struggling. I'm fighting. It is an incredible time. I'm in pain. I'm in crisis. Relationally, financially, physically, whatever it is. Lord, what is it that you have for me that I need to get from this? I submit myself to you. And so whether you are a believer or whether you are a non-believer, if you've not accepted Christ, this is the day for you to come and let someone pray for you and let them lead you through to salvation. Or if, this, if you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years, it doesn't matter. Let someone come and pray for you as you're walking through this situation, believing that God can deliver you today and be all that you need Him to be right in the midst of this. Come on, let's come as we sing right now. Come right now and let Him pray for you.